This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Get things started. Hello and welcome to TGIF DCT. If you're new here, we gather here live every Friday on Clubhouse, and then we share that as a uh, as a podcast through your favorite podcast platform. So if you're joining us here live on Clubhouse, welcome. Uh, you should be sure to tap Decentralized Trials in the top left of your screen. You can follow the Decentralized Trials Club there, see upcoming episodes, access to replays of episodes past. And of course, while you're here, tap around the profiles of people, not just that are speaking, but here sharing the room with you. They share your interests. They could be great connections for you outside of Clubhouse. So poke around, see who's here with you today. And of course, if you're listening to us through your favorite podcast platform, you can always hit the subscribe button there to stay current with each of our weekly episodes as they come out. This week, we're covering a fabulous topic around patient journey maps and decentralized trials. We're going to hear from, honestly, three of my favorite people in the field uh, about some of the work that they've been doing uh, through a collaboration through the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance around creating some patient journey map tools, but also just three fabulous people to pick their brains on what's state of the art for patient input and insight in the space. Before we get started, Amir, where in the world are you today? Well, I'm, I'm home for one day in San Diego. It's been interesting. I've been getting up at about 4 a.m. every day to get everything done between trips. So happy to be here. Well, it is lovely to have you here for that one day that you're uh, stopping off at home. Uh, and um, I'm very interested in the topic today. Really happy to hear we're doing that. And it's always good to understand more. Uh, about that. I will say I just finished a call um, with a client I'm helping who just ran a sort of a global investigator meeting. And, you know, we have to listen to all stakeholders, right? They, as usual, were quite amazed how much more information they got from a global meeting actually meeting their investigators versus, you know, all the correspondence. And I think, you know, it's true for patients, it's true for investigators, it's just nothing replaces that ability to, you know, be next to someone in person and really understand, you know, what, where they're coming from, what you're not doing for them that you should be doing. So just, you know, on a daily basis is a reminder we need to be listening to people. Listening to people and, and nothing beats that firsthand experience one way or the other, whether it's through groups like an investigator meeting or just getting out yourself, whether it's investigators or with patients. I think so many of us, especially, well, honestly, in any sponsor organization, we can just get very comfortable hearing secondhand information through good parties, through trusted intermediaries, but it's still secondhand. If it's coming through the CRO and their CRAs, uh, in terms of what sites are thinking, or quite honestly, if all of our patient input is just coming in through investigators. You know, all of these stakeholders are important. Um, we should get out of our office and get out there and make sure we're hearing from them all. But, you know, it's uh, we could spend all of our day doing that. How do we do that in a way that's kind of scalable and helps us to uh, make sure we can bring that back and, and take it into something that's actionable? And one thing I'll say more is, um, as we, we listen to our guests today, uh, I'll be interested to discuss, clearly, you know, we have journey maps, but every patient has different needs, you know, so there's a whole complexity of um, 
you know, it's not just one patient, you know, it's not like one patient voice we should be listening to, obviously. But also, so culturally, when you, you know, in drug development, we run multinational trials. And, uh, you know, the last hour I was spending talking about every country there was at that meeting, which is pretty much every country, and how different the cultures impact everything from both healthcare delivery, just the way you approach this and how different uh, things are. So it's kind of that too, like we have, you have the sort of the individual patient sort of lens, but you also have the fact that if, you know, if you're running a trial globally, uh, there's actually extreme differences in kind of the patient kind of experience, the patient die, how they're diagnosed, et cetera. So it's, it's a complex problem. Uh, that I just wanted to sort of put that context there as well, that, you know, um, it, it is not a simple thing. Not at all, right, Jan? I mean, there's um, we we all want to hear from diverse patients, but what does diverse even mean today? It's it's so much more um, uh, complex than simply saying I spoke to patients who are black and white and young and old. When we're thinking about all the dimensions of diversity that we want to address and make sure we're being as inclusive as possible. Yeah, I like the conversation from Amir here. The context of culture is something that I don't know that we've really done a great job of um, thinking through and helping teams visualize. But it is that layer of understanding that you have to work through to even know how do I implement whatever it is I want to use in this particular setting with this particular set of physicians and patients. So. I'm there. That's, it's not the metaverse, but it is complicated. I think that's a great setup to jump right in. Jane and Amir, would you believe that this is the first time we're having Dina Bernstein on TGIF DCT? How is that possible? Dina, come on off mute. Introduce yourself for anyone that hasn't met you before. Sure. Happy to do so. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon, TGIF. This is Dina Bernstein, and um, I'm with DataCubed Health. I'm the Vice President of Customer Success. I work in technology now, but a lot of people know me from my site background. I spent the first 20 plus years of my career working in the sites, um, putting technology in the hands of participants, as well as building site networks across the country and um, just needed a big change. And I jumped in at, at the most exciting time. So that's me. So Dina, really still splitting your time between site facing and patient facing. I mean, I this week you're at Patients and Partners, next week you're at the Site Solutions Summit diversity event that sort of embodies the way it seems you split your time nowadays. Yeah, I can't seem to get the sites and the patients out of my blood, which is good. But why do we have to keep going to two separate events? At least there are some that bring everybody back together. It's yeah. great to have you here, Dina. And we're going to talk more about some of the work you've been doing on Journey Maps in just a minute. But let's also welcome Richie Khan. Richie, it's great to have you back here. Welcome. For folks that don't know you, please feel free to introduce yourself. Thanks so much, Craig, and a tough act to follow after the incomparable Dina Bernstein. But I'll do my best here. Hello, everybody. My name is Richie Khan. I'm co-founder and principal at Canary Advisors. We partner with organizations set on patient-focused drug development. I am a public health guy that fell into clinical research 13 years ago, worked across the industry at health technology firms, a number of CROs, and then the clinical trial site side as well, really focused on trying to figure out how can we reduce the time it takes to bring promising new therapeutics to the patients that need them most. Been thrilled to be able to support the good work that the DTRA team is doing and excited to share more with y'all. You know, it would be more than enough to have Dina Bernstein here. It would be overwhelming to have Dina and Richie here, but we've got one more. Not only uh, not only Dina and Richie on, the, on our panel today, but Alicia Staley. Alicia, it is always a pleasure to have the incomparable you here with us today, um, honoree at the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship last year, working and leading work at Medidata and so many other pockets today. Alicia, introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure. Well, thank you, Craig. I feel like I'm. Uh, you were starting off with a Ron Popeil uh, 
some sort of TV infomercial there for a second. Wait, there's more, um, which is even better. I love it. Um, so my name is Alicia Staley. I'm the VP of Patient Engagement at Metadata, and I work to bring the patient perspective into the software development lifecycle at the company. And we do that by really building a network of uh, activated patients that help us look at the cl clinical trial ecosystem in a new way. And I think that's it. That's, that's all I'm going to share. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you're going to share. If that's you want to learn more about Alicia, you'll have to go on Twitter. That's all she's sharing here today. Mike wait, drop Alicia out. <laughs> Thank you. Great to have you all here. Jane, where would you like to get things started today? Okay, I would start with an open question to any of the panelists. Why did you want to be part of the work on patient journey mapping in the DTRA initiative? Anyone? Bernstein well, wins. Oh, go for it. Go, go. Oh, well, how could you not? <laughs> That's all I was thinking. You know, when, when I first heard about DTRA and was excited that um, my organization had joined DTRA, I couldn't wait to get involved and jump in. And um, it just seemed like the best fit for me. And then once I found out who the teammates were, um, Richie and Alicia, I was like so excited because who wouldn't want to work with Richie and Alicia? We had the best time. And once we started putting our group together, some more exciting team members started to come in and volunteer from across the globe. The perspectives that we got were so amazing. And, you know, while some of us might look at ourselves as competitive organizations, we just had this really nice collaborative way of working together and sharing information and doing the best job that we could possibly do. So the journey map could be used by multiple stakeholders in the industry. So maybe folks can explain, um, and, and uh, Richie, maybe I'll point this one to you. What is a patient journey map? How do folks use a patient journey map in, in, the, in the drug development process? Yeah, great question, Craig. This is Richie, everybody. So when we think about journey maps, pretty much every other industry you're always going to have that customer journey map, right? How is a potential customer, current customer going to interact with my product or service? We really wanted to take a look and think thoughtfully across a number of indications and therapeutic areas about not only the various patient touch points, but considerations, things that you need to keep in mind when building out either a new technology or a clinical trial protocol for a particular therapeutic area or indication. And in order to do that, you know, we really felt strongly that we needed to talk to patients themselves to learn more about those unmet needs, a day in the life, quality of life impacts kinds of things. So we could then uh, sort of respond in kind and build things that fit into their lives, right? So often we talk about how clinical trials are critically important. And I think there's sometimes that mismatch in understanding uh, we sometimes believe that clinical trials are the most important thing in a patient's life. And often we lose sight of the fact that clinical trials are things that need to fit into a patient's life. So getting that fuller picture, I thought was really, really important. I was thrilled to be involved in mapping the rare disease patient journey. Um, Alicia and Dean, I won't ruin your fun, but we made sure that we mapped a couple different indications and therapeutic areas that were pretty common and had seen some nice growth in the DCT space. So Alicia, thinking then about these, um, these different areas, um, why diverge into therapeutic area specific journey maps? Is, is there not a common journey or is it common enough? Or um, is, it, is it kind of 80-20? Is 80% of the journey the same across disease areas? When we're mapping? Well, I, I actually think we were um, pretty strategic about the way the decision that we made around doing three different areas. One, um, given that, that the whole concept of DCTs, uh, people are still, we're still at that level where we're talking about it in very um, sweeping terms. 
in, in sort of at a very grand scale. And I think the opportunity to take the patient journey mapping um, down a step into specific therapeutic areas is going to help sponsors and sites and patients actually see the value for the situation that they might be engaged in. So the, that to me was very strategic. Um, give, give sponsors and sites something that they could relate to. So if they're well-versed in oncology, if they're doing something in rare disease, they've got something that they can sort of act as a, a marker for their work. And then secondly, I think, yeah, our, we're probably at the 80-20 rule where about 80% of the DCT clinical trial experience is going to be the same, um, you know, with respect to any therapeutic area. But like for oncology, for, for some of these other very specific TAs, you're going to have very specific functions that may or may not be um, applicable to just a general scale sort of broad brush review. And so I think what we did in this instance is really address, um, I think, a, a critical gap in, in some of the information that we're seeing just in this whole DCT ecosystem, um, starting to really uh, focus in on specifics. So, Richie, I see you came off mute. One, one question I might bounce back over to you um, is, well, is, is the answer always choice, optionality, and flexibility. Do we need more details into a patient's journey versus just saying, let's try to give people as much choice as possible? Yeah, great question, Craig. Um, before I answer that, I saw there was a question in the chat about where to find these lovely journey maps. They are all on dtra.org under resources. You'll also find the best practices handbook, the glossary, and some crowdsourced evidence of impact. I also thought it might be helpful as well to share a little information about what we actually did, because I know not everyone and probably most on the line have not actually seen these journey maps. Like Alicia said, you know, we wanted something that was reproducible, that was usable across other indications and therapeutic areas, but these maps were very much customized um, to the hypothetical trials we were mapping out. But some of the commonalities, um, we had areas of consideration for the key participants, the healthcare team, empathy mapping, pain points experienced by each of the stakeholders, avenues where the DCT components can fit in, uh, what sponsored sites and technology providers need to successfully run a trial. Uh, you'll see all of that information on dtra.org. But the way we thought about it, you know, optionality is definitely critically important. We need to be flexible from that regulatory perspective, but we also don't want to overwhelm. We only want to provide options when they make sense, right? And in order to figure out what makes sense, it all came down to us. We're really talking with those patients and then building out these individual journey maps as a response. So you'll note there's some pretty cool uh, icons and a legend that breaks down for each of these journey maps which modules or which bits of DCT functionality were applicable for the individual journey maps. So there's definitely some variation there. And it was important to us to make sure that we were really sort of customizing and building to suit. Yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in also just to piggyback with my pal Richie is sometimes the thought of having to create a journey map in itself can be daunting. If you're not if you're not familiar with doing it, you don't know where to start. You don't know where to end. And we had a lot of those discussions early on, and we could have started, you know, much earlier. But we had to set some parameters. And the whole idea of um, the maps that we all created, even though they're very specific to a therapeutic area, is that anybody can use these and make them their own. And um, they're easy to use. They're they're visually pleasing. And you know, we just decided as a group that we were going to start with recruitment and pre-screening, and at an end at study closeout, and um, you know, what happens at the end of the trial for the participant. But just to have that template to be able to, uh, you know, reconstruct and use in any possible way was also the mindset of using this tool. So I, I'm, you know, I'm always the pragmatist here. Imagine that you're a clinical trial 
manager and you're starting to work on a protocol and you you're like wow how would i use this patient journey map who would you include in the conversation and how would you advise that clinical trial manager to get started anyone in mind for that one jane uh, oh i'll throw it to alicia Well, I think that's a good question. I think, um, I hate to just say you got to start, um, somewhere, but I, I think in this case, giving the tools to sites and, and clinical research coordinators to be able to go in and actually start to visualize what a patient journey could be, start to see where they need input, start to see where they're going to need support, not only for the site staff, but for the patient just in general, I think is critical. So it's just, it's giving people a different lens or a different angle to start look, looking for solutions and looking for a path forward. Um, hopefully that answers your question. So let me speak it back. What I'm hearing is you would include the site staff in the conversation around how they might map the patient journey. Absolutely. And take that as the clinical trial manager who I was thinking of as a sponsor employee. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking it, this, this is an excellent tool to start building more collaborative frameworks. Like I, I don't, I think we've got to stop building stuff in silos. Um, and sponsors need sites, sites need sponsors. Like there, there has to be a tighter relationship here. And if we can figure out a way to use, you know, a, a, a journey mapping exercise as a way to bring, bring in more collaboration, bring in tighter collaboration, bring in better understanding of who's truly doing what in the clinical trial, I'm, I'm all for that. And I don't, it doesn't matter if it starts with the sponsor or the site, it, it has to start. Got it. That's really helpful. So when you're running, I'm, Imagine that you have a patient advisory group together, Alicia. How would you structure that conversation? Like, do you give them the tool beforehand? Do you work on it interactively together? Because not everyone is going to have the same set of answers, so you're going to have to yeah. make some trade-offs. I, th I think you set you you bring everybody together. You give them the opportunity to look at something ahead of time, and then work on it in a very collaborative fashion. But you do it in a very structured, facilitated way. Um, that allows for conversation to continue to flow. You don't want to shut anybody down um, because they might look at something from a different perspective. And I think these tools give people the opportunities, if you will, to, you know, err more on the side of collaboration than um, pontification, if you will. That's really helpful. And then... Um... Thinking through what Amir was talking about when he came on and the different perspectives and cultural uh, context of different players in different parts of the world. In your own team, Dina, as you were working on creating these, were there differences of opinions on who would be involved in creating a patient journey or even how that would be received depending on where people were from in the world? Or does everyone see the need for this? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that was interesting is I worked on the RSV uh, vaccine trial. We had some, um, like I said, global volunteers on our team and um, very familiar with RSV vaccine trials. And one of the things that, that I didn't think about, it's not necessarily cultural, but it's climate and um, you know there's seasons for it and the seasons are different. So we had to take that into consideration as we were building out the map for, um, you know, for screening and when at different at different times of um, the actual uh, schedule of, of activities, they could be different at different times of the year. So those were some of the things that we were talking about internally. We didn't really talk too much um, about culture, but it was more um, of vetting the optionality because the journey is going to be different for everybody. I mean, a patient is a patient is a patient, and the journey that they go on could look very different 
depending upon many variables. You know, I might be um, afraid of technology, but somebody else might love technology and we could be in, you know, the same age group, um, gender, et cetera, but everybody has their own journey. So we focus more on optionality um, in the way that we mapped out our um, journey map. Okay, and now I'm gonna get real specific. I hate it, but it's a yes, no question. Um, a few years ago, there was still a belief that we can't really talk to patients and it's not a good idea and it could raise all kinds of problems. Is that gone now? Or did you encounter that at all in the conversations in your team? And that's for any of you. All of the teams brought in patients to vet their journeys. So we did talk to patients and I'm a firm believer that you need to talk to patients. You're developing a study for a patient. And while the sites are very important for logistics and implementation with, you know, if you're not talking to the patient, you are, you know, you're making a huge mistake. And I'll, you know, I'll pass that on to Richie and Alicia to add to the thoughts there. Yeah. Just to add to that, Dina, um, and to clarify on, on Jane's question, Unfortunately, I don't think it's that easy. Yes or no. Is it gone? No. Is it wrong? Uh, yes. But I think there is a lot of need similar to the need to educate about the value of decentralized clinical trials and build awareness of how DCTs work and the value they can provide. There's a need to educate about the value and ROI as well and the table stakes, if you will, about talking with patients. There's certainly a there are a number of regulatorily appropriate and compliant ways to do it. Rules and regs will vary country to country, um, but highly recommended, really, really important. You know, there's nothing worse than designing a study for patients and finding out that it's overwhelmingly burdensome, it's not interesting to them, or maybe that the method of administration for the IP is not something they're willing to consider. Yeah, I think this is like a myth Mythbuster topic for the future. Um, I, yes, the, there's still a lot of pushback on whether or not you should be speaking to patients or, or can you be speaking to patients. I think people and the industry seems to be still confused by this concept, which I, I, I have a hard time sometimes wrapping my mind around. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of pushback still, but I think the work that we did in this DTRA initiative was very important because it shows you can work with patients and have really good insights and a lot you can provide a lot of value back to people that that need to hear these things. Um, so I, I think that this is an opportunity to keep pushing on the industry to uh, really figure out better ways to embrace the patient perspective and the patient voice and, and stop considering patients that uh, you know, the rogue patients that sort of beat their <laughs> fists on the table for change, we, we've got to move away from that and bring patients in um, much sooner in this journey and this whole process and allow for this collaboration to take place. Because I think it, it, when we don't collaborate, we really, we stall out too quickly. So I'll just give a shout out here because I, I thank you for the answers, and I totally agree. And I'm hoping that collectively we can leverage the EMA policy or position paper on including patients in the design and execution of DCTs and other trials as part of the messaging to MythBust. So if you haven't seen that, we can drop a line in the chat on how to find it. And I know it's about time to reset the room, isn't it, Craig? It is about that time, isn't it? So if you're here on Clubhouse, welcome. If you're just joining us, this is the Decentralized Trials Club. And if you're joining us through your favorite podcast platform, welcome to you as well. If you're here with us live, give a tap to the uh, Decentralized Trials name at the top. Give a follow there and be sure to check out past episodes. And importantly, tap the profiles of folks that are here in the room with you. They could be an interesting ally for you in the next challenge you're looking to tackle. We're going to open up the room actually now and see what questions, ideas, experiences are on your mind on today's topic around patient journey maps 
in clinical trials in general and decentralized trials in particular. We're here this week with our guests, Dean of Bernstein at Data Cubed Health with Richie Kahn, formerly Medible, now Canary Advisors, and Alicia Staley over at Medidata. As usual, myself, Craig Lipset, together with Jane Miles and Amir Kalali. Let's, uh, let's take a moment and we'll start to hear what's on your mind. Take advantage of that hand-raising icon at the bottom of your screen in the Clubhouse app. We'll grab you and have you join in the conversation. One question for the group while we're, while we're uh, taking this little bit of a pause, what comes next? I'm curious, uh, maybe start with you, Ms. Staley. What's the next gap or challenge in your mind as it relates to decentralized trials and making them work right for patients? What's that next challenge that we should be considering going after together? Uh, I honestly think it's the, the, the site and sponsor um, uh, well, actually, no, I'll, let me back up. I think it's the focus needs to be on the sites at this point and helping the sites um, get a handle on all the technology that is being thrown at them. Um, and, uh, you know, if we're moving to a hybrid, decentralized, whatever you want to call it, kind of format, um, in my mind, this, this puts even more pressure on the sites in some aspects. So figuring out how to shore up uh, the site technology stack, if you will, uh, is critical to keeping this thing moving on, on all fronts. Um, and I, I don't think we do a good enough job at um, really addressing the site workflow. You know, we, we did a great job with our, our initiative here on this team, looking at the patient journey. I think next we've really got to start looking at, at the site journey and see what that looks like. This is uh, a great perspective, right? You can't put the oxygen mask on others until you have put it on yourself. And so how can we expect our sites to do right by patients and use take advantage of these tools and opportunities if we're not supporting them in their journey? Uh, Dina, your thoughts on this one? What, what do you think is that next big gap or challenge for us in making decentralized trials work best for patients? Yeah, well, um, I, I echo with the sites. Sites and patients, I think, are, are the focus here. We need to um, perhaps to you know, add on to our, our journey map and look at what the pain points are, the site burden, and start to eliminate some of the site burden, use some lessons learned. Um, we have a little bit of historical use now under our belt from the pandemic, um, but we're still in our infancy. Uh, of using and implementing decentralized modalities. So um, I would love to see this group, another group within DTRA, focus on the site journey and um, see where we can eliminate um, some of that friction. I mean, I can rattle off a few examples. We, we hear a lot about um, API integrations. We hear a lot of sites that are well-established that want to use their own technology. These are, I think these are some of the, um, the futuristic things that we're, we're going to solve for. Thanks so much, Dean. I appreciate that. And Richie, your, your thoughts on, on what next, what, what's that next big challenge to address to make these trials accessible and work for patients? Oh boy, plenty of thoughts around accessibility, Craig, but just to add on to what uh, Dina and Alicia were saying there, you know, it's so important that we make sure that these DCT products are actually filling needs for sites. They, you know, fit in with the workflows because if not, you don't have to worry about one company competing against another for uh, the best products out there. You're going to have to worry about people defaulting to paper, but certainly as far as accessibility, um, one thing I'll bring up there, when we think about e-consent, which I think is maybe had the greatest option so far, there is so much functionality that can be added in there that can make the e-consent more accessible for others, irrespective of if you're visually impaired like I am, perhaps you've got some mobility issues, you've got issues with things like grip strength, you know? Um, are we eliminating the need for people to provide a wet ink signature or something for a trial for Duchenne muscular dystrophy or MS or something like that? And uh, 
Deconsense can also account for a variety of learning styles. Do you prefer to take in information through audio, video, text, or some combination? So definitely a lot we can do there to improve that experience. Awesome. Thanks so much all for sharing perspective there. We are delighted to welcome John up here. John, welcome. Introduce yourself for folks that have not had the pleasure. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Hey, Craig and Amir and everybody. Um, my name is John Corky. I'm the founder of a uh, health tech startup. We aim to collect digital health data from individuals with dementia and Alzheimer's disease to understand longitudinally the progression disease and validate interventions that will hopefully help future generations to prevent the disease. Um, my question, you know, to Alicia's point, you know, regarding the technology stack is who do you think, how, for the group, who are those universities that are leading that charge? I think the things that really concern me is the interoperability of that data, um, sharing that openly to advanced science. So who are those groups that are really doing the greatest work to make sure that in the future we can all share this? Well, this is Alicia. Um, I, I actually don't think we're doing a good enough job. Um, not necessarily DTRA, but I just in general, I think that it's um, it's quite a struggle still. And I think you've got so much fragmentation in data and data repositories, and the the lack of uh, interoperability. I think has has totally hindered not only healthcare in general, but clinical research even more so. And I've yet to see somebody sort of ahead of the pack, if you will, uh, that's really tackling this as a holistic issue. Um, so we, we seem to be just doing uh, patch patchwork repair, if you will. We put a Band-Aid on one aspect of the ecosystem and, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. You, you fix one side of the board, but then the other side of the board goes crazy. So um, but I, I just don't see anybody really rising to the top of this yeah. Dina, Richie, any takers there? John, Ed, did that cover what you're looking for here? Have you seen different experiences? Well, it doesn't answer the question. I, I think she's right. I think the problem that we're experiencing with so many different companies wanting to introduce their own software, their own technology, is that you know, data is going to be collected in different manners. and. And it is very problematic. And, you know, right now, NIH, I think just uh, National Institutes of Health just, I think the policy just went active a couple of days ago that any funding used for science, all that data has to be shared. Where in the past, it had to be shared, but researchers and investigators would put such roadblocks to getting that data access. They're now saying, hey, you have to make this openly shareable, but where's that going to go how's that going to be you know shared with people is still you know to alicia's point problematic and i'm just trying to figure out where can we as a young startup you know lean on we actually just signed a an agreement with the university i can't say which you know leading group but i'm trying to figure out who else is doing great work so we can make sure that we're going to follow the best practices for the next 10 15 20 years so I think, John, I'll comment on this. I mean, industry is not the only sector guilty of, you know, not collaborating as well as they should. Academia has a history of being extremely competitive, right? You may be old enough to remember when the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine did a editorial calling people to use data from other researchers, data parasites. You know, so uh, I think there's a long history, sadly. I mean, th this is part of capitalism, I guess, that one of the downsides is, you know, uh, instead of having centralized control, everyone can do what they want. And the question is, how do you organize everyone to collaborate? So I think it's an industry problem, it's an academic problem. So, you know, in many ways, many in academia are frankly far more competitive than industry sometimes. Well, that's a fair point, right? We can look no farther than um, data sharing platforms like Vivli and others that you know, at least are at some effort of, of trying to make sure that there is some level of clinical data sharing. But if there is one uh, call to action coming out from the pandemic, hopefully it will be some of the signals we're seeing around continuing receptivity around 
data standards interoperability and helping to further improve our ability to share data proactively so those systems, processes, policies, and interoperability frameworks are in place before the next pandemic. Amir, no, thanks for that. I think, you know, your your comment about parasites is, is absolutely true. I think one of the things that we've realized talking to so many different institutions is that they they tell us, hey, we've spent decades building a cohort of you know different populations and we we you know work so hard to develop this. Why are we gonna share this openly? But you know the other argument is like why would you not? We can you know advance science so much quicker if we put all this data together. You might have a group of five thousand people at your university, but if you collectively have five hundred thousand people that you can you know look at that data set, that is so much more powerful. Absolutely, John. It all comes down to incentives, right? And it comes down to uh, having incentives with academia. The incentive isn't just their publications and holding on to that data. They become incentivized to share. That, that would be the way to do it for sure. Thanks, John. Stick around. Let's hear from uh, Renee Gruber. Renee, welcome. Please uh, share your thoughts on today's topic. Thank you so much, Craig. I appreciate it. And uh, hello, everyone. Good morning. This is my first time on Clubhouse in probably about a year. So excuse me, I'm a little bit nervous. Got to get back uh, my feet back into this. Um, but thank you for having me on. So I've been in um, clinical trials and study recruitment since 2017. My background is in marketing. And um, this last year, I've been helping my father through an oncology through a cancer diagnosis since May of last year. So seeing things from the patient side and being an advocate for him has been so eye-opening. And I wanted to say thank you to everyone here who is looking to share data um, and really get the clinical trial options in front of patients. It's huge. As a patient, you are in such a free fall. There is no direction from my perspective from what I've seen and perhaps you know others have different journeys, but there is really no direction or no guidance, which I am just shocked by, you know, because I'm typically on the side of guiding patients into studies and into trials and not realizing how many are actually left out. So we have a huge need. We have a, a big need to fill here. And I just appreciate everyone's efforts, you know, whether we're competitors or working together, whatever it may be, patients really truly need us. So thank you. And my question for you is along those lines, what are you seeing as the primary entry points to clinical trials for patients? Ooh, that's a great question, right? Is it the unicorn that treating physicians are referring their patients into studies? Is it the dark truth of the internet? Um, anyone want to take that? Uh, Dina, Richie, Alicia, what are you seeing today as being the primary entry points? And is there a single or is it varying quite a bit across different therapeutic areas? I can jump in while people decide who wants to respond. Uh, Renee, I noticed on your uh, profile that you say that, you know, stop chasing patients. You have a solution that is proven and simple. Um, do you want to tell us about that first? And I'll, I'll give you an answer. Um, you know, honestly, I wasn't ready to self-promote necessarily, yeah, but yeah, uh, if no. you asked, I'm happy to share. But, 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 but yeah, no, but you're asking you're asking a question about how did you get patients. So I'd love to know from your, uh, you know, from your profile, you know, what it is that you know, the way you. Yeah, at. absolutely. Uh, well, thank you, Mayor. So, as I mentioned, I come from a marketing background, and um, when I was first introduced to studies, I was quite hesitant to to lump those people like the patients into my typical idea of what a customer is. And as I've become more acclimated to the industry and really understood the patient journey, guess what? Relationships are relationships and we really need to hold their hand and understand their patient journey. And I love the patient map um, discussion here because it is such a huge part of understanding where that customer, AKA patient, is coming from understanding their pain points and understanding what their um, what their needs are really, and so what I did as I moved through um, helping sites recruit patients is identify certain points that were really full of friction. For instance, just getting them on the phone. So perhaps you have lead sources coming in through whatever means you're attracting patients um, 
we typically utilize Facebook and, and social media to get in front of certain patient populations, which works great, but oftentimes the sites were so inundated with other work, they weren't able to get the patient on the phone because there was a, a drop in relationship building at that point. So basically, long story short, what I implemented was a very simple way to, um, as soon as a patient reaches out to a clinical trial or to a site for a study or anything that they're looking to get involved in, we instantly send them a text, a voicemail drop, and an email. Allow them to self-schedule an appointment to get on the phone. And because it's based on their schedule and they're committing to it, we increase the contact rate for that, just that first step from like 10% to over 60%. So it really helps accelerate and just build that relationship. And, and uh, it's a really simple strategy, like I said, um, you can implement it with whatever tools you're using. Uh, we do have our own tools that we love, but, um, but yeah, that's essentially it. Great, the reason I asked that, I'll definitely wanna hear why other people have an answer to your question. I'll just give you one kind of data point from this week. I was at a meeting on the future of psychedelics and someone was um, sharing their experience with their phase three program uh, prior to this uh, in the sort of that area. And they, in the phase three program, he had one slide, which I was already aware of, but I think shocked the audience was that company spent $44 million on patient recruitment for that program through some my, my core traditional media, et cetera. So for that $44 million, they got three patients recruited, just as a little statistic for you. So we certainly do spend a lot of money on uh, methods that don't work, but love to hear what others have to say to Renee's question about the current, you know, where the flow is coming from. Dina? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I don't think there's one answer for that. Um, we don't have, we know we don't have enough physicians talking, talking to patients about clinical trials. So that is still, you know, a problem in the industry and awareness is still a problem. I think we've made some headway with awareness. I think the pandemic is one, the one example of a silver lining. We heard about clinical trials every night on the news. So people became more aware of a clinical trial. It became pretty much a household name. You know, when is the vaccine coming? You know, trials are underway, but we still have an, a problem with awareness. And I am just coming off of the patients as partners meeting in DC. And um, that's how, that's, that was one of the things that they ended the, the sessions, uh, some of the sessions with, with patients saying, you know, we still struggle for awareness. And um, you know, there were some very touching stories. I see Stacy's, um, on the main stage. And I think Stacey would be great to add in um, her perspective on, uh, you know, some of the things that we talked about and, and access to clinical trials. But we, we still have so much work to do. And, you know, we can move that needle for, um, you know, bringing, bringing more uh, opportunities to communities, to, you know, rural areas, to places where um, clinical trials really haven't been discussed or trusted in the past, but even mainstream, right? We have, we now have, um, you know, our local pharmacies getting into the clinical trial space, talking about clinical trials in a place that is trusted. So, um, yeah, still lots of work to do, but, you know, I see progress, but people that need, you know, access to trials, I don't think always have them. And, and especially if they're, they're very sick, what who's their advocate who's going to help them who's going to lead them to you know what they need so um richie does the entry point of the patient in the trial how does that affect the way you think about journey maps i mean do journey maps journey maps i would imagine are upstream of thinking about the types of channels but perhaps by having a good journey map up front we can have a better sense of the ways that patients may want to learn about trials during that journey? Yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, for each of these um, different clinical trial journeys we mapped out, we kind of realized that recruitment or clinical trial knowledge and awareness of a particular study would vary wildly. So thinking about mine, um, we mapped a rare and orphan condition called Wolfram-like syndrome, where the patient's 
were going to be diagnosed through genetic testing, they were probably going to go into Google like I did, and they were going to find the KOL in the U.S. at Washington University, St. Louis. There was going to be an excellent chance that there would probably only be one site in the U.S., and it would be with that KOL who would also very likely mention the clinical trial as appropriate. So we wanted to steer clear of thinking about a lot of the stuff that came before awareness of that clinical trial. We avoided recruitment and all of that stuff. But uh, depending on the indication, depending on how crowded the market is with other clinical trials, whether or not there's a standard of care, if it's an orphan disease, we knew that for the first phase of our work here for the initiative to be mapping the patient journey team, we had to do everything in bite-sized chunks so we could get something accomplished and then build from there. But definitely, there are going to be unique considerations depending on not only the indications, um, but the clinical trial particulars as well. And I think depending on the disease state of interest, patients are going to both learn about studies in different ways and prefer to learn about studies in different ways. Beautiful. No, I think that's the right way to think, right? These are, you know, part of part of our goal with decentralizing research is to make research more accessible. And part of making research more accessible is at the top of the funnel, making sure that people can learn about research through the channels that are right for them. And we have to understand those. Stacy Hurt, it is always a pleasure to have you here. Please, if there is somebody <laughs> out there that doesn't know you, please uh, introduce yourself. <laughs> Oh, Craig, this is why I joined this Clubhouse chat after, much like Renee, being off Clubhouse for like a year. So you drew me back because of the personnel on this call, and you know how much I appreciate you, love you, for, and just show so much gratitude for what you do. So thank you so, so much to all of you for what you do. Um, everyone, I'm Stacy Hurt. I am a stage four colorectal cancer survivor. It is colorectal cancer awareness month still March. So if you haven't been screened, get screened for colon cancer. Um, it can save your life. That's number one. Number two, I'm a caregiver to my son Emmett with a very rare chromosome abnormality that results in a syndrome under the classification of a rare disease. Emmett doesn't walk, talk, or do anything for himself in any way. And one day I'm hopeful that clinical research will produce uh, something to improve his quality of life. And it is why I just joined Parexcel, who is a large clinical research organization. Uh, I work in the patient engagement department and my goal, my mission in life is to improve the clinical research process for patients who are going through it. I'm alive because of patients who have participated in clinical trials. So I wanna honor their sacrifice. Um, so that's just a little bit about myself. Uh, Renee, uh, to your question, it's a huge problem. Uh, I just was on a call this morning about my son Emmett and uh, I sent a message to our geneticist asking about clinical trials. I think it says I sent it 271 days ago. It's unopened. I kid you not. I could send you a screenshot. It is unopened. So, so that's great. So I'm not hearing about clinical trials from my doctor. That's for damn sure. And um, no, I mean, they routinely punt me to support groups, chromosome uh, disorder outreach unique in the UK. And it's just like anything else. We patients find each other in these support groups. We talk about, hey, I know a friend who has a friend who was in a clinical trial. You should try it. And that's the reality. I'm, I'm just being straight up with you. And uh, we do have a long way to go in that regard. Um, my question to the group is, as I do my value prop slide for my talk at MAPS next week, my friends, I would like to ask you for articulating value for DCT solutions. We know that they are critical along the, the patient journey, or as I said, right, Dean of the Patient Odyssey, which everybody sort of sat up and listened to. Um, but DCT solutions are critical uh, for the patient journey. And I just want to ask your thoughts on articulate values, value to the sponsors to get them to pay for those solutions. And, and what are some best practices there? Thank you.
Alicia, Richie, any any uh, takers on Stacy's prompt today? Stace, when you say value proposition, what what exactly are you looking for? I, I'm not sure I followed um, your question, but would love to help you either on Clubhouse or offline. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we know that that DCT solutions are the thing to do, right? I mean, they, they help with enrollment, they help with retention. Um, but how do you articulate that value to a sponsor to get them to pay for DCT solutions along the patient journey? So I'll just have a quick go. So Stacy, we do actually have initiatives specific to this at DTRA. And one of the first things we thought about is ROI, especially in the US, is always thought of as financial. And I think one of the things we need to do is broaden what ROI really means, right? Societal ROI, ethical ROI. Uh, so, so one of the things we're, we're kind of working on is really expanding that definition of ROI to be beyond financial. And then also by collecting information from all the organizations that are part of DTRA, trying to demonstrate that ROI that way and also in a traditional way. So that's where I can start, and I'm sure Jane and others can add to that. Jane, any taker there in terms of trying to measure impact? That's a toughie. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I don't have a succinct answer. And I don't know, Stacy, how to actually articulate. This is just the way society behaves now. Why would you not do it? You would think. It is think, a tough Jane. one. And especially in the current market and the current economic climate, I see friends that large pharma companies, large CROs, large tech companies being challenged on things like e-consent um, internally. And why, why are we still debating whether uh, capturing consent and engaging people in a way that, you know, we, we can use multimedia and all these great other tools rather than stacks of paper on a clipboard? There's data and evidence around it. Why, why do we have to go backwards in terms of evidence sometimes? Uh, you know, when we first started doing work with data return, when I was at Pfizer, there was a very progressive leader of development whose mandate to us was, we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And sometimes I, 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 I fear that we don't have enough leaders willing to say that. All right. We can't end with a Debbie Downer moment, though. So who's going to pull us back here? Stacy. Stacy Hurt, come off mute now and bring us back with something affirmative. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, it's my job to ask the tough questions, right? And, and to challenge us. And, and I think that's, again, why this group is here, because we are moving the needle and we are the leaders in healthcare and we aren't afraid to stand up for patients and caregivers and, and really challenge the system to be better and do better. And that's, that's what I got for you, Craig, is just that it's got to keep going and it is collaborative and it is drawing upon each other, um, each other's strengths, you know, to, to, to change the system in a positive way. And we're going to keep doing it. We're at a, a critical time post COVID to make these changes more than any of us have ever seen. If we're all, if, if we're of a certain age, I think we all are here, you know, we've been waiting for this moment for 20 plus years and, Let's not miss an opportunity and just so much gratitude to everyone. Thank you. Stacey, I really appreciate that. I want to emphasize what Dina, she really described the process of doing the patient, uh, patient journey maps to DTI really well. And what she really talked about was this great feeling of collaboration and they're coming together to do that. So I really love the way she described it uh, at, the beginning, at the top of the uh, program. Uh, so I think that tells us that there's plenty of really good people trying to do the right thing in industry, right? We're all within the structure, which is problematic. Uh, but I think, as you said, Stacey, there's plenty of people trying to do the right thing. And we just got to keep going, like you said. Be better and do better, I think, is a great way to wrap things up today. DTRA.org for the resources that Dina, Richie, and Alicia have been sharing with us today. And these resources just tap at the uh, at the at the bar at the top, or you can find them directly by going to DTRA resources. Uh, online. Uh, I want to thank Dina, Richie, Alicia for your 
leadership, not just in joining us today and sharing, but your leadership with this initiative throughout uh, tremendous humans and tremendous uh, allies in this journey. And John, Renee, and Stacy for joining us here on stage. Make sure you're giving a tap and a, and a follow to some of the folks that are here. Uh, after last week, I also want to call out that uh, Dina's organization, DataCube, some open recs, open positions over there in, in business development. Uh, Alicia's organization, MediData with some open positions and software development. So if you're out there looking to connect, you're looking for that next opportunity, keep an eye out on some of those organizations. Those positions might just be out there. Stay connected to these folks in this crowd with you here today. Amir, Jane, any other final remarks? Just to thank everyone who took part and uh, listened today. Really appreciative as always. Same here. And thanks for the ideas on what to do next. Always appreciative of those. Awesome. Great way to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. Have a fabulous weekend.